Now let's turn this time to the Gospel according to Luke and chapter 9. Page 1601 in the Church Bible. The Gospel according to Luke and chapter 9. And at verse 49, verse 49, Now John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him, because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. These words, he who is not against us, is on our side. Now Christ uh, speaks these words in uh, response to something that John himself had said. John had told him that uh, they had come across this man who was casting out evil spirits. But he wasn't known to the apostles, and so the apostles stopped him doing so. Now something Christ says obviously makes John more or less ask the Lord if, if that was a right thing to do. And the Lord said to him, perhaps surprisingly, no, he said, it was not. You should not have stopped him, because, he says, the one who is not against us is on our side. Now John himself had his own reason for raising this at the time and that was because at this particular point Christ is teaching regarding humility and uh, Christ and the disciples had just made their way from Mount Hermon uh, where the Lord had been transfigured and on their way back from Mount Hermon, there was a distance between Christ and the disciples. And Christ was well aware of what the disciples were discussing. Their discussion was regarding who was the greatest amongst them, who would have the most power or the most honour when Christ eventually established his kingdom. Now I've said to you before that I think some of these discussions perhaps arose not just because they were always dreaming of things like power and greatness, but sometimes because of what the Lord himself said or did. And there was a classic example of that in connection with the Transfiguration, because for the second time in his ministry, Christ had separated Peter, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, and had shown them things and spoken things to them that the rest did not hear. In fact, they were not even allowed to share these things with the rest of the disciples. So it's not difficult to imagine, really, uh, why there should be some kind of discussion amongst them as to who should be the greatest or who should have the most authority or most power. And it's quite obvious that in spite of Christ's teaching once and again on the nature and the importance of humility, these things kept up. 
And we have a, a rather unusual example of it a little later on, which we read a moment ago from the Gospel according to Matthew, where James and John present a request to Jesus, and in fact they presented through their mother. Now that in itself is an interesting thing. Uh, why their mother should make the request on their behalf? Uh, did she initiate it? Or is it the kind of thinking that often prevails amongst ourselves that when a, a woman makes a request it is perhaps more difficult to decline? Whatever the exact thought, the request was that the two primary places of honour in Christ's kingdom should actually be stored on James and John. Now, of course, the Lord answers these things in slightly different ways every time they occur, but the essential response is the same all the time. He says to them, Luke, he says, um, authority and power, he says, in, in my kingdom is not like it is amongst the Gentiles and not like you're familiar with it amongst yourselves. Um, power and authority have to do with status in your mind. It all has to do with the rank and the dignity of rank and office and things of that kind. But he says, in my kingdom, that's not what I value. Work and service is far more important to me and in my kingdom than status and position of honour and glory. I value a humble servant's heart far more than thrones and dignity or robes. So remember that real uh, achievement in my kingdom consists in having a humble spirit and not lording it over people by having an authority, but rather simply serving them. In fact, he says, even if you have authority, that authority should be characterized by a servant's heart. After all, he says, I am among you, you call me Lord and Master, and he says, you do well, for so I am. But I am among you as one that serves. And of course, if I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also wash one another's feet. So the lesson is very, very plain. The greatness that God uh, commends and that our Saviour appreciates mm -hmm. is greatness in service and having a lonely heart. And that's why it wouldn't be a surprise if we were all surprised at who is really great in the kingdom of Christ today. So we need to remember that the desire for, even for office or anything like that, must never be for our own benefit or for keeping others down, lording it over them in any kind of bad way. Now that's what moves John to ask this question. Because they had come across somebody who was casting out evil spirits. And John thought that this could not possibly be right because only they themselves, as far as he knew, had received that commission, that authority to cast out evil spirits. And they hadn't commissioned him to do that. And as far as John is aware, neither has the Lord commissioned him to do that. What's more, the man appears to be doing so successfully because the way that it's written in the Greek language implies that he's not trying to cast out evil spirits, but that he is, in fact, 
doing so. And John, of course, says that they tried to stop him. Again, in the Greek language, the idea is that they weren't effective. Uh, he carried on. But we tried to stop him. Now, John doesn't put it in the form of a question, but there's no doubt that he's asking a question. He's saying to the Lord, were we right in doing that? Was that a lawful exercise of authority on our part? For that matter, is it a lawful exercise of power on that man's part? Was he doing something he shouldn't do? And were we doing something that we shouldn't do by stopping him? Or was it right to stop him? Now, interestingly, when Luke records this incident, it's only two gospel writers that record it. Mark records it and Luke records it. Luke puts this incident right beside the one that we looked at last Lord's Day. If you just read on in the passage, in verse 51, it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He sent messengers before his face and remember this as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to pray prayer for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. You'll remember that on that occasion, as we saw last Lord's Day, uh, Christ is dealing with these sons of thunder, James and John, because that's what their temperament was like. And he is reminding them to make sure that their spirits are right in connection with unbelievers, that they have the right attitude to an unbelieving world. Now, the reason Luke records that incident along with this one here today is because it's essentially dealing with the same point. It's to do with John and James and their spirit. This time, not towards an unbelieving world, but towards others who are working in Christ's name. And of course, that's just as important. Our attitude to those outside the church on the one hand, and our attitude to those who are inside the church on the other even if perhaps they are not with ourselves. So whatever really John's motive was in saying, look who's right here, this man or us, it's quite clear, I think, that Christ's motive is this. John and James, you need to be careful. Careful in the spirit that you have to an unbelieving world, but <coughs> careful also in how you deal with those who are doing anything in my name. And perhaps uh, John was just a bit too quick to forbid this man. You, you notice last week that James and John uh, took the initiative and said, instead of waiting for how the Lord would respond to the Samaritans, they burst in and said, do you want us to take fire down from heaven? Maybe John was too quick here in saying to this man, you shouldn't be doing this, stop it. Ought he not to have come to the Lord first and said what should we do with somebody like this it's this impulsive tempestuous spirit 
in a son of thunder. But whether we're sons and daughters of thunder or not, I think we all have the tendency sometimes to speak first and ask questions later, or to do things first and ask the Lord to bless it later on. We need to be far more ready to bring everything to the Lord, especially things of which we're not sure, things that we haven't come across before, or difficulties or dilemmas. Bring them to the Lord. Our tendency is to think that our sanctified common sense, which isn't as common as we like to think of, and neither is it as sanctified as we like to think of it be. But we think that we can bring everything to our sanctified common sense, and just because we are Christians, then our judgments on these things will be right. Not so. We need to take everything to our Lord and to our Master, so that we decide on all things under His Spirit and under His control. Ought not John to have done that? Well, I think the juxtaposition, if you like, putting these two things together, is Christ's way of telling us that John should have consulted first, and perhaps acted hastily. The Lord, after all, says, let the man be. Leave him alone. And then he says, if he's not against us, he's for us. Now, a minute's reflection on that text will, will make you realise that's not an easy text. It's not an easy text just to take on its own and say, well, it's a rule that always applies in every case. If someone is not against us, then definitely he's for us. There's a few reasons why it's difficult just to take it like that. The first is that it's very difficult to reconcile that with the rest of the Bible's teaching. Can it really be true that in Christianity it's enough just to be not against Christ? Is, is that what the rest of the Bible teaches? Let's say, for example, you take the most apathetic person in story today. That he's, he's not against Christ. In fact, he's not against anything he can't be bothered with anything to do with politics or religion. He's uh, happy with a glass of wine in one hand, maybe a cigarette in another. He's got a remote control beside him, and he's got his mobile phone. That's his world. And if you're to ask him, are you against Christ? Say, not at all. I'm certainly not against Christ. Why should I be against Christ? I know some Christians, and they're quite nice folk. And the little I do know about Christ, he certainly seems to have gone about doing a lot of good. Does that mean he's a Christian? Would the Lord say in connection with that man, well, that man is not against us, therefore he's for us? That would be, that would be a very, very strange text to apply to the man. If, if that's the case, then what's the point of the urgency of the gospel, really? Why would Christ be so urgent in his appeals? Why would Christ say something to you or to me, like uh, strive to enter in the narrow gate? and to walk on the narrow way that leads to life everlasting, if it's really enough just not to be against him. Why would the Lord say something like, in order to enter the kingdom, you must take up your cross and follow me? <laughs> Why would that be so, if it's just not enough, or if it's enough just not to be against Christ? Why would the Lord say, what is true, that it's through much tribulation that we must all enter the kingdom of God. I mean, why these appeals and why that urgency? Why the difficulty of entering the kingdom of heaven if it's actually as easy as all that? Just don't be against me, that's all. Neutrality is enough. Even neutrality is enough to be a Christian. 
where would it leave to the five foolish virgins? I mean, there they were, <coughs> eagerly waiting for their Lord's return. I mean, they weren't even neutral. They were eagerly waiting for their Lord's return. But when the Lord came, of course, he dismissed them eternally from his presence. Or where would it leave the warnings even in connection with his own church? The Lord warns us about people who are dangerous in the church, people from whom we sometimes need to separate ourselves. Paul warns Timothy about those who are carrying false doctrine, and he says, from such, withdraw thyself. Christ warns us about wolves in sheep's clothing. John tells us in one of his letters, this very John, of course, that's being spoken of here, although he received this rebuke as an apostle, fully empowered with the Holy Spirit after the day of Pentecost, tells us in his second little letter to make sure that we don't bring into our house those who are peddling false doctrine in connection with the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, of course, tells the church in Corinth to put out the immoral man from their fellowship until he shows repentance. Even more famously, and in fact, in connection with this very passage, you'll remember the Lord's words in Matthew 7, verse 22. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, <coughs> to me, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does my Father's will. And he says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, have we not cast out evil spirits in your name? And I will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. So there you have people working in Christ's name who actually have no admittance into the kingdom of heaven. Now, on the face of it, these things are difficult. How do we reconcile that to this? <laughs> I suppose there's a third difficulty too. Uh, some of you will be aware that Christ elsewhere makes a statement that appears to be completely the opposite of this. He says, he who is not for me is against me. Now how on earth do you reconcile that with this? On the one hand you've got here, he who is not against me is actually for me. And in another place, he who is not for me is actually against me. So what is it that we're to make of these things? Well, friends, I think it's important that we understand them properly for a few reasons. Um, <clears throat> if you take this at face value, <coughs> you can relax about most of the unbelieving world. In fact, you can relax about the church either. In fact, you can relax about everything. You can work with anyone who appears to be a Christian or who claims to be a Christian. It doesn't matter what doctrine they've got. It doesn't matter what denomination they work in. If they're doing Christ's work, let's join hands and do it all together. But that's not what our Lord is saying. Let's clear up a few things. First of all, this man that John and the disciples come across is obviously following Christ. He is a disciple. In other words, although he doesn't walk around with the twelve, Nonetheless, he is still a disciple. That shouldn't surprise us. Most of the Lord's followers were not literally following him all over the place. Some were called to full-time discipleship. 
we, we have a record of 70 of them. Others were called apostles. They were particularly close to the Lord because they had the duty of establishing the New Testament church when the Lord himself was gone. Most of the disciples just carried on living in their own homes, doing their own work, and raising their own families. This man here is clearly a disciple. We're not told that he's not. The next thing that's very plain is that he is doing Christ's work. Through, we know nothing else about him, but the only thing that we do know about him is that what he's doing is a good thing in itself. He is certainly casting out evil spirits and doing so in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, as the Greek tells us, he's successfully doing it. Not just time, but he's casting out spirits. The next thing that we know about this man is that he must be keeping the law of God. Or at least we assume that he is keeping the law of God. Nothing to suggest that this man is a liar, a perjurer, a vowbreaker. There's nothing to suggest that this man is sexually immoral or a fornicator or an adulterer or anything like that. There's nothing to suggest that this man is not keeping the Lord's day holy or anything like that. There's nothing at all like that. I mean, let's be clear. If, if something like that was true and evidently true about this man, the Lord's response to John would have been completely different. Completely different. After all, that's, that's why he said in Matthew 7.22... Many will say to me in that day, have we not cast out evil spirits in thy name? Lord, Lord, have we not? And he will say to them, depart from me, for I never knew you, ye workers of lawlessness. In other words, the Holy Spirit may indeed, in God's uh, mysterious appointment and providence, have touched your life. He may indeed have endowed you, with the power of the performing of miracles, which you'll remember Judas Iscariot was endowed with. Just as you'll remember from the Old Testament, Balaam was endowed with the spirit of prophecy, although he was a covetous and wicked man. So the Lord will say to these people, yes, you may indeed have done so, and you may have called me Lord, but your lives were characterized by habitual disobedience to me. You gloried in a religion, you gloried in having the power, in having the authority, and in having the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but you didn't glory in the graces of the Holy Spirit. You were not concerned with love, joy, peace, gentleness, and meekness. You did not value the cross for the salvation of your soul, and you did not value the way of the cross as a life of discipleship. No humility, no Christian humility, no Christian love, but you had power where power is not. There are many people who can, at times of revival, be touched by the power of God's Spirit, but it doesn't change their lives. And at the end of the day, it's a change of life that God's looking for. And any claim to faith that we have that doesn't, that isn't accompanied by a change in life, or that doesn't result in a change in life, is a spurious faith. So make no mistake, if this man's life and conduct was somehow inconsistent with what he was actually doing, Christ would highlight that. There's no trace of that. There's nothing to say that this man is not a good and loyal and faithful disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And once we establish that, we start getting nearer the truth. Because in a nutshell, 
the problem with this man, as far as John and the disciples were concerned, was that he is not with us. That's it. In a nutshell. <laughs> Nothing really wrong with him or what he's doing, but he's not with us. He's not an old group. Not approved by us. Not sent by us. And when they say us, I don't think they're including the Lord there himself. The issue really is not to do with this man's relationship to Christ. It's more to do with this man's relationship to them as apostles. We, we never sent him. We never gave him authority. We never commissioned him. We're not aware that you did either, but he certainly doesn't follow with us. In other words, Christ's warning here is not about how you deal with error, really, or how you deal with false doctrine, or how you deal with people who are loose living. It's all about exclusivism. What people call party spirit, and which most affects the church in denominationalism. Denominations, as somebody said, may once be sometimes may sometimes be necessary, but denominationalism never is. Denominationalism is what happens when the party imperceptibly becomes a bit more important than what the party actually stood for. Perhaps the greatest evidence of that is even when the party changes beyond all recognition, still in the party. And you need to be still in the party. And if you're not in the party, you're not one of us. And if you're not one of us, you can't be doing the Lord's work. Party spirit. We've got to watch it ourselves. As individuals, we need to watch it whatever group we are in. Party. Who you associate with being more important than truth and holiness of life, character, and behaviour. Now there's something in us all that likes to be associated with a party. It's just in a way the way we are. It's just that we have to be careful about it. Take politics, which is a realm that you know well because it's <coughs> fed to us day by day, drip by drip all the time. I remember growing up when people just about knew who the Prime Minister was and when it would change that would be that. People now think they can't live a day without knowing the details of everything that happens in Westminster or anywhere else, as though it was actually all that important for our lives. But of course, in the 19th century, you saw the rise of the party. You know, if you went back even, I suppose, if you went back, say, 50 years, you'd find quite a lot of independent MPs in the House of Commons. If you went back to the 19th century, nearly everyone was independent. But then, of course, you saw the rise of the parties. And unless you belonged to a party, there was no real space for you in the House of Commons. And today, that's the case. How many independent MSPs are there? I, I don't know. Very, very few, if any. How many independent MPs? Very, very few, if any. And, of course, once you join the party, be obedient to the party, whatever the party's like. I don't recognise either of the parties compared to what they were like 40 years ago, but you still belong to the party. It's the colour of your rosette, of course, that matters. In the, in the late 19th century, the, the old Tory party, as it was then, was dominated by two giant figures. They, they strode like a colossus, both of them. 
over the political landscape. You'd have heard of them, Disraeli and Gladstone. And they started to have a disagreement on, on a point of principle. And Gladstone famously said to Disraeli, he said, but if we do this, he says, what happens to our principles? And Disraeli's response famously to Gladstone was, now he used colourful language that I'm not going to use, he essentially said, forget your principles, remember the party. Forget your principles and remember the party. It led, of course, to a cleavage. Gladstone eventually was behind the formation of what became the great old Liberal Party, as it was then, and uh, Disraeli's Tories gradually became the Conservative Party. But there you have it in a nutshell. Forget your principles. Think of the party. That's the spirit that is wrong here. But never mind politics. What about the church itself? Well, this has something to say to us as groups of people. It's also got something to say to us as individuals. And I think it all needs to be said. In the church sometimes, especially when spiritual life goes low, it's denominations that seem to matter most. And I've noticed in recent years that determined denominational attachment is actually getting greater. The, the more spiritually cool the atmosphere becomes. The attachment is important even when principles are less and less important. Belonging to a group is now to do with labels, banners, buildings, false sense of history and false sense of tradition. It's not to do with what we actually believe or how we practice anything. It's simply names, labels and banners. It comes through in lots of ways. Um, even within different denominations it can come through lots of ways. Let's say, for example, there's a scandal or a fama of some kind in the church and the church immediately tries to cover the thing up. And you, you say, well, you covered that thing up. And they may say to you privately, well, it's, 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 the, it's the name of the church that matters. <laughs> or they say, it's the cause that matters. Well, friends, the cause of God can easily withstand a scandal. Believe you me, the, God knows how to deal with a scandal. Whether we apply the principles or not, God cannot deal with a scandal. But what's really meant is the name of our church. It's the name of our church. That's what really matters. You see it in strange things like statistics. You know, these things can happen at very small levels. You know, statistical returns that churches can return to one year after another saying how many people attend. And you have. I've seen this in my time. I've seen churches where you know there's barely a handful of people and they come back saying there's a hundred odd people regularly attending or whatever. And you know it's not the case. But it makes the party look good, you see. If you're able to say that you have so many members or whatever, it makes the party good. Is, it, is that for the cause of Christ? Of course it's not for the cause of Christ. It's for the party. The party. Here's a candidate for the ministry. Well taught, extremely able, very good preacher. Ah, but he didn't come through our system. He wasn't trained in our college. He didn't get our degree or our award of recognition. So unless he does another year or another three years with us, we cannot receive him. Really? Is that right? Is that irrespective of how the man has been taught and led by the Spirit of God and his ability in declaring the Word of God to others? Oh, but the party. The party. 
even when churches are encouraged to, to come together. All the churches will say, oh yes, it'd be lovely to be together. You're very welcome to join with us. And uh, you can come with us under our name. Because that's what matters. Our name and the banner. Let me be quite clear about this. There are, there are, there are four denominations that claim to be national denominations of Scotland that are in quite a low condition, but they're in the same they're the same in doctrine, worship, and government. You know them ourselves. Free Church Continuing, APC, Free Presbyterian Church. They're the same in doctrine, worship, and government. This is it not a sin to be apart? If we can all affirm the Westminster documents from which we all came, which, one, which once formed the basis of unity for the whole Scottish Church, if we can affirm them all, then... Why are we not together? Is that not a good question? Is it not the sin of schism to be apart? I mean, if we can bind together around these things, why are we apart? Why are we worshipping apart when we worship the same? And if it's a sin to be apart, is it not an even bigger sin not to talk about being apart? Refusing to meet together. Refusing to meet together in case the mere act of speaking might contaminate. Because it's our label, it's our party. Friends, if we had less of John's spirit, and if we had more of the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ, we would close ranks around these truths that once bound us. Close ranks. And we would join hands with brothers and sisters who love the same doctrine, the same form of worship, and the same form of government. It's as simple as that. And I believe too, I mean this is just my own belief, but I have warned from, from Scripture, I think, for believing it, that if we did so, the Lord would honour us all a lot more than he is doing. I don't think any of us realise that our failure to have this kind of spirit is itself a hindrance to the work of the Lord amongst us. It's a hindrance. To be just determined to have our own label and our own party and that no one else is of any use or has anything else to contribute hinders the work of the Lord. And it may well be true that you may be in a group like that and saying, well, why are we not growing and prospering? And you may identify this reason and that reason and another reason. But it may be our attitude to one another that's the problem. Exclusivism hindering the work of the Lord. And you see it, you know, in, again at the wider level, you know, let's say you're in a church or in a group of people or a group of churches that is very clearly falling away, and not just falling away in spiritual temperature, which can happen to any, that can happen to any church, but actually falling away from foundational things, changing things like worship or doctrine or things of that kind. And there is another church more faithful that you wish to identify with. Representatives of that church will say to you, oh, you, you can't leave the church. And you say to them, well, I'm not leaving the church. I'm actually going to that church there. And say, oh, no, no, no. That's, no. When we say you can't leave the church, what we mean is you can't leave our church. You can't leave our party. You'll notice by implication that they're saying that these other churches are, are not really churches. It's though they're not doing the work of the Lord, these other churches. Our church. 
is the church to which you must adhere. And under a kind of banner of being concerned about unity, they are actually divisive. Amazing, isn't it? How clever the devil is. How clever the devil is. He always finds a way of making people more important than truth. He doesn't work with us, John says. And Jesus says, never you mind that. He's not against us. Therefore, he is for us. He is for us. It can apply to us personally too. Look, friends, if you've been around for any length of time as a Christian, as Christians, you'll have noticed that there are other good people in other churches. If you haven't noticed that, uh, there's still quite a lot to be learned. But there are other good people in other churches. Surely this passage tells us to encourage them in doing good. If they're doing good, encourage them in doing good. And certainly many of them may be in churches that are more or less identical to your own. Well, all power to that element. If they choose to remain apart from you, that's their prerogative. But let not the choice to be apart from them rest on you. Even if you're sometimes baffled by where they go and how they stay there, well, you recognise that maybe it takes a while for people to see what you've seen already, or maybe there's just a kind of blind spot in their eye. You can't explain it, but there it is. Maybe you can't follow them where they go, but you can still, insofar as you can, uh, share with them regarding the work of the Lord. Seek to do them good, seek to uphold them, and pray for them. Don't reject them, unless they are being clearly unfaithful, like I mentioned earlier, something in their lives that clearly just not right. If they're not against you, remember, they're for you. But before I close, where does that leave us in connection with the other thing Christ said? After all, he didn't just say, he who is not against us is for us. He also said, he who is not for us is against us. How do you reconcile these two apparently irreconcilable sayings? Well, friends, the answer as always lies in context. In our passage, let's call this an in-house dispute. Two groups of people doing the Lord's work and they can't for some reason see eye to eye. And our Lord tells us how to deal with that. But when the Lord says he who is not for us is against us, he's not talking about an in-house dispute. He's talking about the church and the world. He's talking about believers and unbelievers. Not two believers with a disagreement, but, two, but unbelievers and <coughs> believers. The great divide in this world between those who are Christ's and those who are not. Those who are bound on the one hand for heaven and those who are bound tragically on the other hand for hell. Those who belong to the kingdom of darkness on the one hand and those who belong to the kingdom of light on the other. As far as that goes, he says, unless you're for me, you're against me. There's no neutrality. No neutrality. You have to be out and out for me. You have to be definitely, decidedly, deliberately on my side. You can only be for or against the Lord Jesus Christ. You must be either for or against the Lord Jesus Christ. In that matter of salvation, it is not enough to be not against. You must be for. 
how well we know that to be true. You can't bury your talent. You can't appear before the judgment seat and say, well, I, I didn't persecute Christians. I, I didn't try to make Christians' life a misery. In fact, I have nothing against the Lord Jesus Christ. Not enough. Not enough. I know I mentioned to you before the person that I met in, in the hospital here when I was a minister in Stormwood many years ago. person I met in the hospital. On his deathbed, as it turned out, and I'm quite sure he knew he was on his deathbed at the time, and I tried to speak to him regarding his relationship with God, and he immediately came in and said, I've done... Oh, sorry, no, this person wasn't in Stormwood. I think this person was, was uh, in Glasgow. I'm mixing him up with somebody else. But he said to me, well, as far as I know, he says, I've never done anyone any harm in my life. That was the pillow on which he was resting going into Allah and eternity. That was the pillow. As far as I know, I've never done anyone any harm in my life. You know, <clears throat> I don't know exactly how I responded to him, but thinking about it, my first response should be, you've got a poor memory. My second response would be, what about the good that you could have done that you never did? Does that ever bother you? Uh, certainly as a Christian, to be honest, I'm far more bothered by what I could and should have done than what I've done. That's not saying that everything I've done is good, but I just mean what I say. I am far, far more bothered than what, by what I could and should have done that I did not do than what I did. And there's this man who thinks he didn't do anything against anyone and that that somehow was enough to get to heaven. Well, not having something against Christ is not enough to get into heaven. No, it's not enough. Let's make sure, friends, that we know the exact difference between, on the one hand, if you're not against us, you're for us. And on the other hand, if you're not for us, you're against us. Think long and hard about these two sayings. Make sure you have them both worked out and make sure they both apply in the right way to yourself and me to myself too. Let us pray. <coughs> o Lord, our God, grant us a good and right spirit towards others who may themselves be holy in life and conduct but for whatever reason are not with us, and we not with them. We pray that we would judge people charitably and uh, grant us grace to have the spirit of our Saviour rather than the spirit of John. And uh, we are thankful that as you dealt with John's spirit and cleansed it and reformed it, so you will cleanse and reform ours too, if we but look to you to do so. Deliver us from putting party before principle, putting names and banners before character and faith. And O oh Lord, help us to admire what is truly admirable, a holiness of life and conduct, and zealous and earnest faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Bring these churches of which we spoke together we pray and grant a willingness of heart to rally together around that banner of truth which 
once held us together. And may we come to that place where we are always companions to those who love and fear thy name. And break down these walls that are erected by men and maintained by men. In Christ's name, Amen. <coughs> Let's uh, close by singing in Psalm 119. And at verse uh, 59. Psalm 119 at verse 59. I thought upon my former ways and did my life well try. Of course we often apply that to people who are leaving a life of sin and embracing life with God, but they have a far wider application than that. That can be true of a Christian who may feel that he or she has walked for some time in a way that is not right. And to thy testimonies pure, my feet then turned I. I did not stay nor linger long as those that slothful are, but hastily thy laws to keep myself I did prepare. And here in verse 63, he's not interested in labels or names, but I am companion to all those who fear and thee obey. O Lord, thy mercy fills the earth. Teach me thy laws, I pray. 59 to 64, we stand to sing. <coughs> Yeah. Mm-hmm.
Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.